Hey everybody, Jen here. I'm excited to be potting tonight. Um, I'm in a mood. I'm I'm exhausted, which is a good kind of exhausted because I've been managing keeping keeping myself busy. Um, doing another podcast, which hopefully you've heard about by now. It's called the LifeCoachPod.com. It's a weekly show. I'm doing it at one o'clock on the weekdays, and I'm looking for guests and interviewing interesting people, ordinary, regular, cool people doing cool things in an effort to keep us all connected and maybe do a bit of a time capsule in these weird times. Um, And so I'm not forgetting about The Lawyer's Daughter. In fact, that's what I'm here for tonight. And I and I needed to. I posted recently the um, both the video and the podcast of my live live talk. <clears throat> and if you haven't had a chance to see that, it's actually pretty interesting on YouTube because I have slides there with photographs. Some of them, <coughs> excuse me, it's choking on my own spit. I do not have the virus. <coughs> Thank you. Um, anyway, some of the photographs, in fact, most of the photographs were from the heroic efforts I had to pull off to get photographs for HBO. And Grace, if you're listening, thank you for kicking my ass. She must have kicked my ass for five months. That's how long it took for me to chase those damn pictures. But it has been amazing. And so those pictures are in the YouTube video. If you go to YouTube and just put in Lawyer's Daughter, it should come up. You'll see the little logo. And you can watch those pictures or kind of surf through them quickly if you've already heard the rap and don't need to hear me talking again. But what I wanted to say about that whole thing is that I am so uh, grateful. I, you know, I, I, I don't have enough, I don't have the right words to say it, but I can't explain to you what it means to me to know that you're listening, that you care enough to listen, because it, it means a lot to me to tell the stories and to go back and um, go back and drill into some of these memories and some of the things that happened that even I sometimes can't believe I lived through, that we all lived through. And then to get such cool communications from you either on Twitter, which is a place I love to hang out. I'm at J I'm Jay Carroll there. So follow me on Twitter, talk with me on Twitter. It's fun. Um, also on Facebook, also uh, on Reddit. Also people have actually just sent me emails, which is really super kind. And while I may not have gotten back to you and that's on me, I apologize. Sometimes I'm, I have the best of intentions and then I just forget. And then you know how things are. They go down the stream and you go, dang it, I got to go back. I need to go way back. So I apologize for that. But I wanted to tell you it means so much. And I have had a lot of you listen. And I know people are sharing, which I also very much appreciate. And folks have given me great ratings on um, Apple, on iTunes. So thank you for that. I don't I don't have an Android, so I don't know what it looks like on Android. But all the re- the positive reviews, the positive feedback, it's just really meaningful. And if I haven't said thank you lately, I want to say it tonight. I want to say thank you very, very much. So I'm going to do two weird things tonight. First, I'm going to tell you about something. I actually found the article about something I've mentioned a couple times, and I think I might have even mentioned it in the live talk. But r- soon after, um, Dad and Charlene were killed. Like, I I don't really know when, but it it felt like it was like around the summertime. Oh, this article is dated January 1st, 1981, which is a odd date. So it must've been a little later than I thought. It just felt like soon after, but we did something unusual. And again, like I said, filthy with lawyers, right? We have lawyers everywhere in our lives. That's that's how um, my family rolled back then. I still have them today. Both my brother and my sister-in-law are lawyers, but they 
aren't uh, litigators. They're, they're just uh, juris doctorates who use their law in other ways. But, um, which is, by the way, completely useless if you have to sue somebody. Why don't we have litigators in the family? I do not know. But eh, that's neither here nor there. So when, I, when we did this weird thing is that we filed a lawsuit against an unknown killer. And I have said weird things like in absentia or something. But I found an article that um, I want to share with you that explains what the heck we did. So I want to talk about that first. And then I want to talk a bit about my dad and business. Because there is, um, I'm going through the murder book now. And I'm going back to old articles. And I realize this is a good time as Annie to go back through some of this old stuff because we're kind of in a holding pattern with um, additional hearings and even the uh, preliminary hearing. You know, we're right now holding to see if if D'Angelo gets coronavirus. I mean, I'm I'm nervous about that every day. That is just that is just this nagging, nagging feeling I have. So while we're um, bidding, while we're spending this time together. I'm going to go back and go through some of these articles because it's fascinating to me and I really want to get into the ALSIP trial because I think we'll learn some things that'll help us know uh, how what Ventura might use in the prosecution with the with D'Angelo. So I really want to get to that and, and we're moving forward in these stories to get to that point. So first, let me talk about this article. It's from um, January 1st, 1981 in the Ventura County Starfree Press, of course. And this doesn't have a byline, but this is um, Unknown Killers of Smiths Sued. Though no one has been arrested in the slings of a prominent Ventura attorney and his wife. Prominent, but yeah, that was how we've been talking about it, right? Prominent Ventura attorney and his wife. One of the most notorious murder cases in Ventura history. A $3 million wrongful death suit was filed Wednesday against whoever is responsible. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny now. I'm sorry. That just I that just hit me as hilarious because, of course, D'Angelo doesn't have any money, even if the suit was still applied, and I've been told it doesn't. But um, $3 million, $1980 value, $1981 value. Oh, if only. Anyway, okay, I continue. Allow me to stop laughing at the irony. All right. Attorney Lyman R. Smith, 43, and his wife Charlene, 33, were attacked as they slept... Okay, just a minute. Attacked as they slept. Haven't we? Okay, I mean, we're not there yet. Sorry, we don't have. We are not going to learn that they weren't asleep until the the preliminary hearing of Alsip. So, in terms of the date timeline, this is 1981, and they're still saying that they were attacked as they sleep. But wait, we're going to find out how how uh, how incredibly wonderful their home was. So let me just start over again. Attorney Lyman R. Smith, 43, and his wife, Charlene, 33, were attacked as they slept in the bedroom of their posh hillside home last March and beaten to death with a firewood log. Feels redundant. Sources have indicated that police have a suspect, but there is apparently insufficient evidence to warrant an arrest. Ooh, that's kind of the lead and they buried it. All right. Anyway, Plaintiffs at the suit at the, uh, plaintiffs in the suit are Lewis Gabrielson, administrator of the couple's estate, and Smith's three children. Gabrielson is a Fillmore certified public accountant. By the way, Gabe is what we called him, and he was an old friend of my dad's. And he was, um, he uh, honestly, he was old when this happened. He passed away, uh, I think, 
he passed away a long time ago too, but he was old when this happened, but he was um, so sweet and so kind. And he really thought we had a better understanding of money than we did. And I, God love him for that. But we really didn't, we kids hadn't really, I mean, I had worked and Jay had, all of us had had jobs and everything, but I don't think we really understood big money, really how to manage uh, real money, you know, more money than a hundred dollars, honestly. So, okay. So Gabe was the um, administrator for the couple's estate and the three children. John Doe's are named as defendants, and the suit states that it can be amended when the true names are learned. Gabrielson states that the suit was, that possibly up to three people were involved in the attack that occurred. Oh, interesting. That is very interesting. Gabrielson states in the suit that possibly up to three people were involved in the attack that occurred at the home at 573 High Point Drive sometime during March 14, 15, or 16. There you go. Talk about not knowing when the dates are. Um, what day they died. Police have never officially indicated how many persons might have been involved. The two bodies were found by G Smith's son, Gary, the afternoon of March 16th. The suit states the couple was attacked willfully, wantonly, and maliciously with an instrument or instruments causing one or more blood force injuries to the head. Gabriel said also indicate Gabrielson also indicates that he is informed and believes Mr. and Mrs. Smith both survived for a brief time after they were initially struck over the head. Okay, what? Now, I don't, I don't know about this, but Gabrielson indicated that he is informed and believes they both survived for a brief time after they were initially struck over the head. They weren't particularly struck over the head. It's not like Bunny Fru-Fru and they were bopped upon the head. They were bashed in the skull. I mean, yeah. Okay, so struck over the head is a little weird. Authorities have never commented on this aspect of the murders either. Sources have indicated that a muffled cry was heard from the Smith residence sometime on the night they were killed, but evidence also suggests both were apparently knocked unconscious and died, sources said. The suit asks for 1000 in funeral costs and $3 million in punitive damages. Smith, for many years a respected lawyer in the county, was expected to be appointed to the Superior Court bench within a few days of his death. So this is interesting. So you know, I do a cold read of these stories when I'm doing this podcast because I like to react to them real time uh, as we work together through this old stuff. Did you realize you were working together with me on this? You absolutely are. Um, so I, there's a couple things that are really interesting here. So Gabe was connected in Ventura County. He knew a lot of people, and I could understand that he might have had some sort of information about them being um, that they he informed and believed that they both survived for a brief time, but that doesn't make any sense to me, not at all. That I don't know how you would survive that kind of blow. Also, he um, we do have this stuff that's cropping up about this muffled cry, and when I go back and get back in date order, I want to just pull this one out of date order because it's so interesting and I've talked about it. Um, but there is some talk of this muffled cry. Um, and so we we can t we'll take a closer look at that uh, as we look at some of the other stories, but this idea is that they were both apparently knocked unconscious and died. One does not just get knocked unconscious and die. You you are struck to to kill you. The intention is to kill you. Anyway, I digress, but it just it's kind of shocking how they just drop this little stuff in here and that there's a suspect. 
um, because I don't know if we've been hearing about that yet. And it's just, here it is on January 1st of 1981. So soon, not soon, God, somewhere in 2018, like later in the fall, because I remembered this, I forgot that I had a, a printed story about it. I would have sounded less like a spaz when I called about this, but I called the attorney that filed this lawsuit that was the actual lawyer that filed this lawsuit and he kind of was rude and sloughed me off and um and I and I believe what they said is this thing isn't good anymore but I don't understand why it would have expired and so actually if there are any attorneys from Ventura listening I don't understand why a, a suit that's filed against a wrongful death suit against whoever is responsible would actually age out. This is murder. There's not a statute of limitations for murder. Why would there be a statute of limitations for this suit? And if that's the case, damn it, we could have possibly put a lien on D'Angelo's assets before now just to hold them. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not interested in the money particularly. I'm much more interested in the power that this lawsuit would have had to to subdue or to to limit his assets and to somehow put them uh, protect them or, or you know bind them over not finding the right words here but to make sure that we have those assets available for any purpose later F- even if it's to repay the state for this expensive case like whatever so i i would really love to know how something like this expires and why it would expire it seems like it would exist in perpetuity because it is not naming someone and it doesn't go away, there's no reason for it to have aged out. Unless, of course, there's some ridiculous law, as we're finding like the three years statute of limitations for rape. Um, I know there are silly laws and there are probably reasons for them. I didn't go to law school for a reason. That's why. So anyway, okay, that's the lawsuit part. Um, Interesting to me. I need to know more. I am going to hope that one of you guys reply to me and we get to the bottom of this because I, I just really want to know. And it is what it is, it's a it's filed in California. It's just for anybody, any lawyers filed in the state of California, and it's absolutely a wrongful death suit against whoever is responsible. So against an unknown party, up to three unknown parties actually. Oh, maybe if well just if there were any other guilty parties there and y'all know what I'm thinking if there was any I don't know people that he was married to that might have some culpability okay still could sue uh if we can figure out this lawsuit so that's the status of that there go mystery a mystery and yet something we paid good money for god knows it was not done uh as a courtesy I remember I had to write a check for that because I was the adult child and we were taking it out of um one of the things people uh, may, may or may not know is that when you are murdered, your life insurance policy pays triple. That ended up being incredibly fortunate for the Smith kids because it turned out, as my dad had raised us our whole lives, all three of us, you go to school, you get good grades, and you go to college. Only he hadn't saved for college. And that's going to provide um, a a beautiful segue to the other article I'm going to share with you today to talk about my dad and his business, at least what I can remember. So uh, my dad, man of values, went to law school, went to Berkeley. He studied hard. He held us accountable at a high, very accountable for our grades and for our performance at school. Of course, I'm the firstborn, so I did very well. Jay is the secondborn. Jay had a beautiful social life. He did well too. He's a smart kid. But um, 
he also was incredible. As a middle child, he had just the most wonderful social life. And then Gary, who is might be the smartest one of the three of us, um, extremely diligent and worked very hard. And of course, he had to bat in the position of following the older siblings through school. So every teacher, we all had the same teachers year after year, because that's what you do in a small town. And every teacher for Gary had to live up to the Smith standard and either be as smart as Jenny or as charming as Jay. And honestly, Gary's kind of both, but he's also um, way, way more angsty. Gary's just always been more cynical. He's a Luddite. He doesn't like technology. So, um, but he is funny and uh, he's funny and delightful. And I'm friends with half of his friends on Facebook because we just share the same sense of humor. And I probably spent more time with Gary growing up than with Jay because Jay had such a big social life and Gary was kind of lost the little kid growing up uh with you know everybody doing their thing mom working hard by the time we were divorced but I remember I took Gary to the drive-in with me when I was 18 and there's a picture of him somewhere where he at 13 is okay this I shouldn't be bragging about this he's drinking a low and brow for all the people on the phone who don't remember on the podcast who don't remember what a Lowenbrow was. This was a brand of beer. It was like the, um, oh my God, the Sierra Nevada of our day. I don't even know what would be, maybe, I don't even know what would be the equal now, but Lowenbrow was like the beer you had to drink as a teenager um, back in Ventura. And so Gary's running around the drive-in. We're at the drive-in. We're drinking these beers. He's just this little squirt of a guy. And uh, he he got to have a beer, which was so stupid, but it, whatever. It didn't really affect him. Took him home, put him to bed. But that's he got to hang out with his sister. So he also got to come up to UC Davis and run around the dorms like a mad person, this little scrawny little kid, um, and have a lot of fun up there too. But I don't. We didn't smoke weed with him. No, he probably drank a little bit though. So anyway, Gary and I have always been close in that way. He's had an older sister who's let him misbehave. Back to my dad. God, my goodness, how we have have gotten off track here. <clears throat> I'm sober right now, by the way. So just saying, look at how I could wander. So my dad was raised poor. He was raised in Citrus Heights in a Quonset hut. You need to Google that because it's those dome-shaped uh, aluminum things, or maybe they're some other kind of metal, but they're, but for my dad, it was a shameful, shameful place to be raised. He was always, um, somewhat ashamed of it, which is, which is too bad because he was not ashamed of his parents. His dad worked for his, uh, dad, um, Lyman senior worked for the railroads and his mom was a farm woman, hardworking farm woman, but apparently the love of my grandpa's life, actually everybody loved Wilma, that she, she came from Idaho, I believe, good people from Idaho, and she was just beloved, but she died young. She died of breast cancer because back then we didn't have treatments, and she was sorely missed by both the boys, my dad and his brother, when she died unexpectedly, and of course, my grandpa was just bereft. So my dad, because of his poverty, tended to overcompensate in terms of his ambition. I didn't really understand this until I was a teenager. It might have been right around age 12 that I think I got it. But one of the things I always believed, and maybe all kids believe this, is that I believed my dad was super, super honest. 
And I thought that that was that integrity and that honesty was a core part of what made him a good lawyer is that he was always an advocate. He'd fight for justice, regardless of which side he fought on. He did, he did both sides of it. He worked for the DA's office and he worked as a defense attorney. Um, so he's been on both sides of the law. But to me, I saw the, him as this man that fought for justice and was very fair. And then I found out, and it might have come along with his relationship with Charlene when he was cheating on my mom. I didn't find that out right away, but I did find out about it. Um, but I found out my dad lied. And I remember being devastated. And that, And with that, then my mom started to share more of the stories about his approach to life. And it's interesting because I'm a lot like him in many ways, but I took this, this one it made a big impact on me, actually a really big impact on me. My dad would step on people on the way up. He would, he would step on people for sure. And that was always my thing is, which, which is my pivot is I try to bring people with me. I love that I've had success. I'm very proud of how hard I've worked, but I also am very proud that probably on on fewer than two hands, I could count the people who really just can't stand me. Um, and that's and the same. And I don't have very many people on my blacklist. I just don't because my goodness, that's just not how the world works. You, there, everybody's trying their best. And while we may or may not agree, we're all trying. Typically, we're trying our best. At least that's been my experience. And so I've wanted to bring people with me as I've had success. But my dad, unfortunately, stepped on people. So in his pursuit of ambition, he made he was trying hard to get rich fast. Yes, he wanted to be a politician. He wanted to be a senator. Um, he moved and uh, moved very fluidly in the Democratic Central Committee in Ventura County, and then also within the state, as he was doing more activities with the governor's office. And that sort of thing, that's probably put him on the judge track, which, by the way, was going to be interesting if that had ever happened, because some of these things were going to come out. But he also cut corners, played tricks, played with money, and didn't save for his kids for college, which I personally consider to be a bad thing. That's your job. You should save some money for your kids for college. I know that people want their kids to work in college or whatever, but and they, you know, it means more if you work for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's expensive and hard, and it and that's some of to me some of your obligation as a parent to save some money for your kids for college. Okay, that's my paid commercial. Anywho, he hadn't saved a dime for us. So when that insurance, that life insurance policy that he had, came through at triple, it ended up being a lifesaver for us, for the three kids, because there was no money to go to college. And while all three of us worked while we attended college, we all had different jobs. It allowed us to go ahead and go to four-year university. So I went to Davis, Jay went to Davis, and then Gary went to Davis for a little bit, but he didn't, that wasn't the right place for him. He ended up at UCLA. And then he went on to Northwestern, where he got his JD, MBA, um, I went on to Sac State where I got my master's degree in communications. <laughs> Surprise, compulsive extrovert got a degree in communications. I know you're stunned right now. So all that said, one of the things that happened in September uh, um, of 1980 is that the Smith estate was sued for $5 million. So this is Greg Zeroya, our reporter from the Starfree Press, and he has a story here about this lawsuit that's been issued against the estate. It's funny because there kind of really wasn't an estate, but 
if there was anything left. I mean, there was a house and there weren't a lot of other assets. Uh, but this lawsuit was a big deal. There was also, I don't know if it's going to come up in this article when we read it, but the other thing my dad did, which was pure crap, super bad, super embarrassing to me because these are people we've gone on to live with. My dad didn't pay, pay, apparently didn't pay the employment taxes for the, or payroll taxes for the employees that were working at the firm. So when he died, they discovered back payroll taxes had not been paid. That is a real shit move to do to your partners and for your employees. When you're in that small of an intimate office, I mean, it's a shit move to do anytime. But to think that these were the men uh, that he that were his partners, his law partners, and then these secretaries were there working for them, doing doing their jobs, doing a damn good job too, from everything I understand. And my dad pulled this shit. I mean, I was so embarrassed by it. This lawsuit here, not so much, because this is just like what men do, but um, women too. Women too. Sorry, I can sometimes be sexist because sometimes it just feels like it's the stuff men men do. But um, they're always doing deals, right? So I'm going to read you this story, but I want to let you know that my dad really did, he did make mistakes in his climb up and his ambition, his ambition cost him his integrity, to, I've got to say. And that to me is uh, a life lesson that I took very hard and and it changed, it didn't change me, but it made me clear about who I wanted to be and how I wanted to live. All right, let's dive in. Sorry, blah, blah, blah. Santa Paula rancher A.E. Bud Sloan Sr., longtime friend and client of Slane Ventura attorney Lyman R. Smith, filed suit against Smith's estate Monday seeking $5.4 million in general and punitive damages. The allegations Sloan makes against Smith in the suit, dealing with a multi-million dollar business deal between the two men that went awry, are in stark contrast to feelings of trust, admiration, and affection for the wealthy rancher. Oh, an affection the wealthy rancher has said he held for Smith. (sighs) Interesting. Sloan had put up the money for the business deal. That's really important because a lot of people think we were really rich. No, we weren't. And even these deals my dad was in, it was begging, taking from Peter to give to Paul, as they say. So Bud, Bud Sloan, we knew about Bud. He, we did meet Bud as kids, but he had put up the money for the business deal. In the suit, Sloan charges Smith with legal malpractice, breach of attorney-client trust, fraud, and fraudulent transfer of property. Yet in a recent interview with the Star Free Press, Sloan and his wife, Elsie, had high praise for Smith, who was reportedly in line for appointment as a superior court judge. He was hell of an attorney, Sloan said of Smith. If he was going to legally fight, he'd fight you until hell freezes over. Oh my God, that was my dad. That is why I can argue today, ladies and gentlemen, right there. He would fight you until hell freezes over. Named as defendants in the suit are the administrator of Smith's estate, Filmer Account accountant Lewis Gabrielson, and Smith's law firm, Romney Smith Stone and Drescher of Santa Paula. In what many have described as one of the most notorious murder cases in recent Ventura history, Smith and his wife Charlene were beaten to death March 16 in their expensive hillside home in Ventura. Police have made no arrests in the case. Again, this is September 23, 1980. In the recent interview, Sloan expressed a mixture of deep affection for Smith and frustration over his lost $2.4 million investment in a beef-transporting airline-flying primary... Sorry, I read that. Every time... Oh, my God. I have to tell you this because 
I don't know if the story's going to tell you, but I'm already laughing because they, the guys, the men called this bullship, S-H-I-P, bullship. So I'm, I will try to read this again because this is literally what this business was, but they were shipping uh, cattle and bulls and bullship. Okay. I guess it must have been funnier at the time, but uh, so I'm already giggling. Okay. Frustration over his loss of $2.4 million in a beef transporting airline flying primarily between the United States and Iran. Again, okay, we're going to go back to 1980. So they were shipping cattle to Iran. The airline was initiated by Smith and two associates. But that, the loss of the money, was not Lyman's fault. I want to get that straight, Sloan said at that time. He reluctantly revealed, however, that his lawyers were exploring, exploring all legal avenues toward recovery of the money, including legal action against the estate. It's up to them, his lawyers. I don't know, said Sloan. Oh, one of those. And one of those who, I don't know, it's just happening around me. Sorry, clutching my pearls. Anyway, here we go. Handling the lawsuit for Sloan are Clifford Meyer and Linda Lasley of Los Angeles. The airline in question is Maverick International. Sloan is seeking return of his investment as well as $3 million in punitive damages. Although the airline is still technically in existence, Sloan said Maverick ceased functioning in January 1979. The airline operated for about a year and a half after formation in late 1977, Sloan said. It operated primarily as a transporter of cattle carrying about 98,000 pounds per flight in the company's two leased Boeing 707s from New York City's Kennedy International Airport to Iran, he said. Political upheaval in Iran during late 1978 brought an end to Maverick's flights to that country. Okay. <laughs> I, I knew about Maverick and I knew what they were doing, but I was a kid and I didn't understand politics like I do now and international relations and the political landscape and holy cow. And I can't even say holy cow because that's also going to make me laugh because this is a story right now about cows. But I did not really understand that they were shipping the beef on Boeing 707s. That is a hell of a big plane to take cattle to Iran. But okay, it happened. And then 1978 happened and the Maverick flights were stopped. Here we go. Let's continue because you can't make this stuff up. In the interview, Sloan cited earnings of $16.9 million by the company, but Sloan said he never received, oh, I'm sorry, but Sloan said he received none of that money despite his being the primary investor. Once again, neither did we. Where is the money? Okay. On July 18th, Sloan filed a claim against the Smith estate demanding $2.75 million. The allegations of that claim in the suit filed Monday are the same. Sloan and his wife own more than 6,000 acres of ranch land in Ventura, most of it in Aliso Canyon near Santa Paula. Sloan says he also owns 18,000 acres of land in Mendocino County that is worth, according to the suit, $7 million. Smith had originally been approached by Daniel Hood and Edward Pegram with the Maverick idea. According to the suit, in late 1977, Smith recommended to Sloan and his wife the refinancing of the mortgage on the Mendocino property to pay off a $500,000 debt on the property and provided an initial $1 million investment in Maverick. Okay, so go refinance and get the million dollars. They, Smith, Pegram, and Hood, kept after us and we just gave in, said Mrs. Sloan during an interview. They had it all set up, she said, and all it needed was money. That's where we came in. The loan was obtained from the John Hancock Mutual Life Insurance Company. 
Sloan, Smith, Pegram, and Hood formed the board of directors for Maverick. In the suit and the claim against the estate, Sloan alleges that Smith and the law firm of Romney, Smith, and Drescher negligently, and now I'm going to read you a list, here's what they did wrong, issued each of the directors 25% of shares of the company rather than issuing 45% to Sloan as promised. Ooh, ouch. Okay, so they divided up equally instead of giving him 45%. Number two, issued and delivered 25% of shares to Pegram and Hood without the shares being paid for. That's a nice deal if you can get it. Three, failed to obtain a written agreement from Hood, Pegram, and Smith guaranteeing repayment of Sloan's loan if it was not repaid by the airline. Number four, failed to advise the Sloans, who were described as unsophisticated in business and legal matters, of a conflict of interest in that Smith was not only their attorney, but also attorney for Maverick and an individual stockholder. Dad, bad boy. Number five, failed to advise the Sloans that the initial $1.5 million investment wasn't enough to get the company going. Six, failed to supervise the affairs of Maverick or keep the Sloans advised of adverse developments. Seven, authorized or permitted Maverick to pay unduly large amounts of money for the professed expenses of Smith, Hood, and Pegram. And eight, formed a new corporation known as Can-Am Support Services in which Smith, Hood, and Pegram were stockholders and for which funds were diverted from Maverick, all without telling the Sloans. (sighs) There you go. That is, that is... That is about what the big lawsuit that was filed against my dad's estate, which I don't believe anybody got any money for ever because there was no money. Although somewhere my dad had diverted money, which now that I read this as a grown-ass woman, I can see that this is pretty messy and I wonder where the money went. It is my understanding my dad didn't even have money to buy the house on High Point. That money was um, the down payment money or some portion of the money was provided by Charlene's grandmother, Gladys. So what the hell? Where was this money? Where was all this money? Who has it? Where did it go? And the poor Sloans, whether or not they were sophisticated or not, something they did something, right, to have that kind of estate. So boy, bud, um, sorry about that. So I'm, I don't know how to f- learn more about this to see what happened with this lawsuit and see how it all, uh, where it went after this. It's really hard to do some of this research online because the archives don't go back that far digitally. And so you'd probably have to sit there and do the historical research on premise, which none of us can do right now since we're all sheltering in place. But it's interesting and sad that my dad was, uh, my dad, he just thought he was so smart. He always thought he was smarter than everybody and that he was two steps ahead and he was always going to fix it. He was always going to fix it. He is like, Every con you've ever heard in the movies who always tells you it's going to be okay, I got this, I got this, I got this, as they get in over their heads. So uh, th- this that's why I've often said it would have been really interesting had he gotten that judgeship, as it is um, Uncle Bill, Uncle Bill Peck, Bill Peck, uh, who was uh, like our Dutch uncle for my whole growing up, he did get the judgeship. He was the right man to have gotten it. He was absolutely a man of incredible integrity, a good friend of my dad's from law school, but it just, it feels right that Uncle Bill got that job and he just passed away. He passed away right before D'Angelo was caught. So bummed that he didn't get to know. Uh, So anyway, I don't know what would have happened if my dad had been a judge because it seems like he would have had to pass some sort of um, background check 
or something to find out if he was really doing his business properly. (sighs) Okay, well, welcome to Discovering My Dad's Past with me. If anybody wants to do some historical research, let me know because there's some work to be done here, but it would definitely have to be done in Ventura. And I don't know where the money ended up. And, you know, had I realized this sooner, had I tuned into this sooner, I could have asked Mr. Gabrielson, but he is no longer with us. So I'm sure he had to file reports as a a guardian and executor, but I don't even know who got, where those reports get filed and who gets those reports. Certainly wasn't my mom and they did, I didn't get them as the oldest child. So I I don't know a lot of this stuff. um, It's so hard to keep up with. And one of the reasons I want to talk about this is that if you are, if, if you have family, if you have a, you should be doing estate planning now anyway, with coronavirus, we should all be taking a look at our estates. And I don't care how small they are. You need to name guardians for your children. You need to know where your life insurance policies are. Somebody needs to know what your passwords are. There's a lot of things we need to get in order. So if something unexpected does happen to us, we're, we're prepared and our families can go on. Oh my God, I'm so, so boxy tonight. I've just been thinking a lot of big thoughts. Okay, so that's the pod for tonight. Um, let me. This one's really a, a listener feedback podcast because uh, these are both of these things, both the lawsuit against the unknown suspect and this lawsuit against my dad's estate. I really don't have the answers to. This is the beginning of the mysteries, not really the end. So y'all can jump in and help me and, and get some ideas how we can maybe get some answers here. I thank you so much for listening. As I said, rate it. Uh, share it. And thank you so much for being part of my audience.